Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 28th of April and the year is 2020. And what I'm going to do today is continue along this discussion that I've been having with you um, in my Authentic Biochemistry series production on the immunoendocrinology of disease. This will be segment number six, or lecture number six. It's only half hour long because it's going to be audio. Uh, and uh, next time, probably, I will be doing a video because I know some people like that. Today, I'm going to talk to you about pro-opiomelanocortin, uh, which is essentially going to be a pre-protein that gets converted via a series of proteases to a series of hormones, which regulate many components of uh, human adaptation to nutrition, um, not the least of which is satiety. Um, of course, the POMC uh, polyprotein also will be converted ultimately after proteolytic um, processing to the endorphins and enkephalins, which of course are associated with mood elevation in humans binding to the opioid receptors. So we're not going to talk much about that today, but that is a component of satiety, obviously. So I'm going to talk to you about POMC, and I'm also going to talk about palmitoyl-CoA, that is 16 colon O, that fatty acid, stereified, of course, to the thioester coenzyme A, because that's how it gets sent into metabolism. I'm going to talk to you about a couple of papers I found, which are very revealing in how the literature deals with fatty acid lipid metabolism, meaning that they don't very often think through because they don't know the molecular uh, system, they don't know the biochemical pathways, and because of that, they make broad assumptions about what their data says. So all that's going to be centering around the HPA axis, which starts with the hypothalamus, and so that's where we're going to get going. <clears throat> All right, so you have this gene called pro-opiomelanocortin or POMC gene. It gets uh, transcribed into one transcript, and then that transcript gets essentially ultimately translated to, um, oh, uh, somewhere around eight or nine proteins. So the signal peptide is removed. You get a gamma um, uh, MSH being generated that's a melanocyte-stimulating hormone from one of the first fragments coming from the amino terminal of this polyprotein segment. But then you get um, another region, which is between segments three and five. These segments I'm talking about here are endoproteolytic cleavage products. And the first product there is ACTH. That's the adrenocorticotropic hormone. Uh, and then it gets processed to two other fragments, which are about equal in size, the alpha MSH, so it's melanocyte-stimulating hormone, alpha form, and the CLIP. <laughs> now, the CLIP is the corticotropin-like intermediate protein. I know, it's a very ugly name. Um, other proteins that get, to, that get synthesized after proteolytic um, processing is the beta-lipotropin, uh, and that's produced in the corticotropes um, in the interior pituitary and it's controlled by CRA, JVP, and angiotensin II. We're going to talk about a little bit more about AT2 receptor 
in a moment here. But the beta lipotropin can also be further processed, uh, a portion of it anyways, to the gamma lipotropin and to portions of uh, the terminal region of that poly original polypeptide, making beta endorphins. Um, these are produced in the intermediate lobe of the pituitary gland, and they're actually controlled. The processing, the conversion, is controlled by norepinephrine. Ultimately, the last two products we could talk about are the beta MSH. So we have a total of three melanocyte-stimulating hormones, the alpha, the beta, and the gamma. And we also have metenkephalin. So endorphins and enkephalins, of course, are your endogenous opioids. Okay? So it's basically the locus we're talking about here. It's a standard endocrinology. <clears throat> now, here's a paper published in Molecular and Cellular Endocrinology. It's in volume 472, published in September of 2018. So about a year and a half ago, not maybe a year and three quarters ago, uh, pages in 40 and 49. So what is this kind of paper that I'd be describing? I tell you that an elevation in 16 colonol, that's palmitic acid, in the hypothalamus results in the inflammation and the endoplasmic reticulum stress response. They're going to argue that it leads to a decrease in insulin signaling, as illustrated by a reduced insulin-stimulated phospho-AKT, which is a biomarker for that, weight gain, and metabolic dysfunction, plus an increased phospho-J and K, it's another kinase, and a cleave caspase 3 protein level. All that they're saying is associated with palmitic acid um, showing up uh, from the diet or, in, in, or depending on the experiment, directly uh, introduced into the hypothalamus if it's an animal model. Now, palmitate, that's a saturated 16-carbon fatty acid, notable bonds, also increases the transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and the very potent interleukin-1 beta. The ER stress markers CHOP, which I'll talk about uh, soon, that's CHOP. The BACS BCL2 ratio gets altered, and a protein that I've talked about in the past called GRP78, and a lot of other proteins, too, that get involved in the unfolded protein response, or UPR, which is ER-associated, and all this within the hypothalamic neuron uh, the that uh, is actually where the site where this is occurring. Now, elevated hypothalamic palmitic acid biochemical effects can be mediated via the TLR4, right, Tolec receptor 4, and the downstream IKK beta and NF kappa beta signaling pathways and the MAP kinase signaling pathways. So we've talked about these kinase pathways as intermediates in intracellular um, control over metabolism and gene expression. Hypothalamic palmitic acid could theoretically increase ceramide via the de novo pathway or, of course, via ceramide synthase. And I want to make sure you get that um, at the beginning of the lecture because the de novo pathway is what these papers are going to be talking about. They somehow have ignored or are not aware <laughs> you can make ceramide lots of different ways. Now, on previous encounters with this podcast, I talked to you about apoptosis and necrotosis. So I'm not going to get into the details of that today. I refer you back to discussions we had on the mixed linkage kinase domains. We talked about RIP proteins. Uh, we talked about 
the FAS-associated death domain, tumor necrosis factor receptor and trail uh, being intermediates and processing and mediating and apoptosis. Um, I also talked about death receptors. Those include the FAS and TNF um, receptor 1 and also the FAD-D adapter, which of course is going to recruit caspase 8, and that's going to be processing onto apoptosis. I told you that this RIPK1, which is a kinase, uh, mediates NF-kappa-B activation during pro-survival and during pro-inflammatory signaling. And then the brain is succession of blood flow, followed by reoxygenation as something called ischemia reperfusion, or IR, uh, in the hospital, in the clinic, <laughs> and that induces a complex cascade of events involving an energy failure and an alteration of ionic homeostasis, of course, that results in excessive release of neurotransmitters, especially glutamate, into the extracellular space. That's another component of this whole process. I told you there was a link between interferon, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and the inflammasome, which is this subcellular structure which generates a process which causes uh, autophagolysosomal processing as well as an induction or a setup of a factory to make pro-inflammatory cytokines. So digesting uh, intracellular contents, changing the entire biochemical makeup of those cells, and then the generation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, the inflammasome is about. I told you that interferon, uh, interferon, the inflammasome-mediated damage, is in response to various disease states. In fact, it induces a lot of disease states, and it can link uh, to um, bacterial infection, viral infection, and all the subsequent disease etiology and pathology. We talked about a paper published in the Journal of Neuroinflammation where I talked about interferons. I talked about interferon receptors, and I'm not going to get into that anymore to just remind you of that, okay? So I'll also mention to you just very basically that when you're synthesizing uh, these sphingolipids, there's a specific pathway that you have to keep in mind, okay? In fact, there's a couple of pathways. One of them is the de novo pathway, which starts with palmitoyl-CoA, that is the thioester to palmitate, and then the reaction called, which is pyridoxal phosphate mediate, which means, of course, it needs manganese in the plus two cationic form, uh, that that reaction, uh, palmitoyl-serine transferase or palmitoyl-serine palmitoyl transferase, depending on the literature, so we'll call it that. That's SPT. That's the first reaction of genosynthesis of ceramide. Product of that is 3-ketodihydrosphingosine, uh, which then, of course, gets reduced to the sphinganine or dihydrosphingosine. And once you make dihydrosphingosine, uh, you have an, uh, two more reactions, the hydroceramide synthase and then the dehydroceramide desaturase to make ceramide. Okay, uh, those are all the de novo pathway. Now, I'm telling you right now that other ways of synthesizing ceramide that you've heard many times is via sphingomyelinase. Um, these are enzymes which break down sphingomyelin to ceramide plus phosphorylcholine. And you also have the ceramide synthase or salvage pathway, which can take the free base sphingonine and add back a fatty acid to that nitrogen atom left over from the serine, and that makes ceramide. And that's a very important reaction because it remodels the ceramide pool, 
with specific fatty acids at that amide linkage. Really critical to understand sphingolipid metabolism. I also talked about the fact that ceramide can be phosphorylated and sphingosine can be phosphorylated and C1P and S1P respectively um, can bind to specific receptors and there are multiple receptors for sphingosine 1-phosphate. There are actually five or six of them and they work through different G protein motifs, which then trigger intracellularly phospholipase C or phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase or AKT or the ERK kinase uh, or the Rho kinase. And ultimately, depending on which of those species is, is turned on by which G complex, you get protein kinase C, CNOS, FOXO, transcription factors, the glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta, the BAX-BAD system, or the NF-kappa-B inos. So there are multiple systems being turned on just by moving around phosphate on either ceramide or sphingosine backbones. Like we talked about a lot of diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and aging, where the ratios of ceramide to sphingosine 1-phosphate seem to be linked to these processes. Again, we're not going to have to go through that right now. Just keep in mind that that is the case. Now, switching gears a little bit and reminding you that there are adipokines. There's an adipokine called leptin, and leptin basically, when it's uh, introduced, can increase blood pressure. It can activate immune cells. We talked about that. It regulates appetite, controls metabolism, and therefore energy homeostasis. <clears throat> Leptin's involved in regulating the menstrual cycle in women, regulates bone body mass, uh, increases heart rate, and it decreases glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. So leptin is synthesized from adipose tissue and normal leptin. It acts uh, it, it basically coming from normal fat mass, controls appetite, it increases metabolism, and it controls weight. With we have low leptin, um, you have a reduced leptin signal coming from that fat mass. The body is obviously in a fasting or starvation mode that increases appetite and decreases metabolism. If you have leptin resistance, sort of on the same par with insulin resistance, resistance simply means you make plenty of this hormone, but the reception of it is not facilitated for various reasons, sometimes just the receptor is faulty or lacking. Um, the brain only receives part of the leptin signal that allows, allows this body to have excess uh, fat mass, right, or depot fat or visceral fat. The response then, unfortunately, is an increased appetite, decreased metabolism, and a massive weight gain. So leptin resistance, like insulin resistance, are hallmarks of obese people. You get an increased risk then of type 2 diabetes, T2D, and metabolic syndrome. Again, we've talked about this uh, multiple times, and I'm not going to get into it uh, any more than just what I described to you. Okay? Uh, we have mutants in leptin metabolism. Uh, but ultimately, the, the core feature is that leptin provides an adipose signal to generate a satiety signal in the hypothalamus. Okay? So that's, that's basically where I want you to uh, be for leptin. Now, let's back to this paper, Molecular and Cellular Endocrinology, okay? published again in September of 2018. The arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus contains opposing orexigenic NPY agouti-related peptide neurons, 
and anorexigenic POMC neurons. So orexigenic means feeding, and then, of course, anorexigenic would be satiety, right? So the satiety hormone is the one I talked about right at the beginning, the POMC, okay? Whereas NPY and the agouti-related protein, or AGRP, those are hormones that are going to be triggering a feeding right, from coming from the uh, hypothalamus, from the arcuate nucleus. Okay, so these are these are regulating food intake, energy expenditure. They integrate signals of energy status from hormones, nutrients, and including, of course, free fatty acid. So the exposure of cultured NPY neurons to palmitate uh, increases more NPY transcription. And that effect is blocked with pretreatment with anti-inflammatory drugs. Now that suggests to some researchers that free fatty acids induce inflammation and they and therefore they act as a mediator for altered NPY transcription. Obesity, of course, is linked to an inflammatory status, right? That's what I've been talking about for the last five or six lectures. So it's linked to an increase, obesity is linked to an increase in POMC transcription, but the POMC levels are decreased with prolonged caloric restriction, right? So the hypothalamic prohormone, POMC, is enzymatically cleaved, as I told you, to produce alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which acts as that CTT signal. And it does so by activating a particular receptor called the melanocortin-4 receptor, or the MC4R. Dysregulation of POMC by sustained nutrient excess, such as an overeating obesity, decreases the alpha MSH, MSH inhibited feeding response. It overshoots the mark. That results in increased food up intake and a body weight. Now, leptin also, you get also leptin resistance, right? Okay? We just mentioned that. So the POMC neurons are selectively targeted for apoptosis compared to NPY neurons, suggesting that distinct neuronal populations differ in their sensitivity to free fatty acids. So it seems that apoptosis can be generated in POMC neurons by excess of amount of certain fatty acids that have been introduced to that locus or have been generated exogenously by feeding a high-fat diet, high-fat diet chow, HFD chow, to mice or rats. Now, these are the kind of experiments. These are not clinical, obviously. These are animal models, which have been used now for decades to generate the hypothesis, and it's only an hypothesis, that high-fat diet it generates obesity. Now, if you've been following any kind of scientific literature, even the kind that gets distilled, converted, diluted, and corrupted via the media, uh, you'll think that, well, wait, now, isn't also high carbohydrate uh, generating uh, a obesity? And the answer is an absolutely valid and sound yes affirmative. Carbohydrate is converted to triacylglycerol, as storage depot fat in the body. And what happens is you get a shutdown of de novo FAS or de novo fatty acid synthesis. So actually carbohydrate is directly converted to lipid. Okay. High fat diet actually acts to inhibit fatty acid synthesis, for example, hepatically. 
And that in many ways is a better homeostatic control because then you're utilizing fatty acids because of hormone sensitive lipase. Uh, and that then generates uh, enough ketosis or ketone bodies. And you've heard about the ketogenic diet, I'm sure. I'm not going to talk about that today because I've done it in the past. And a lot of that also is hubris and hyperbole when it comes down to what is distilled in magazines and even in so-called pseudoscientific journals. And I'm not going to go through that right now, but let's continue on with real science. Now, again, I'm not trying to um, dissuade you from thinking that there isn't something in the literature related to um, the fact that high caloric intake is related to generating an obesogenic state because it certainly is. So if you have a lot of calories, it doesn't matter where they come from, protein, fat, or carbohydrate, you're going to gain weight if you have a sedentary lifestyle, especially as you age and then preconditioned according to genetics and epigenetics, right? Things I've talked about considerably uh, thoroughly in authentic biochemistry and my very I've met authentic biochemistry video lectures and in all the lectures I've given over the years at university as a professor of biochemistry. So that's what I'm doing here, but I don't want to um, increase the amount of verbiage on the fact that high caloric intake will result in obesity in humans and the obesogenic state is one that's pro-hyperimmune pro-hyperinflammatory, and that can set the stage or a status for a person who is obese to contract multiple kinds of morbidities and pathological states, either associated with pathogens or associated with endogenous diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, autoimmune diseases, uh, cardiovascular disease, and cancer, all related to this inflammatory dysfunctional state associated with obesity. Okay. That's, I think, I don't think I can make it more clear than that. Um, but okay. So let's go back now to this discussion that we're having. This is <clears throat> important, pure biochemistry. Now MAP kinase signaling has been shown to play a role in palmitate induced inflammation, ER stress, insulin resistance, leptin resistance, and indeed, ultimately, apoptosis, like in the hypothalamus. So you have a couple of different signaling pathways. You have the uh, GNS kinase and the ERK kinase signaling. They both appear to be required pathways for palmitate to increase the POMC transcription rate, and the effect is independent, or at least they appear to be independent, of palmitate-mediated inflammatory response, or ER, so you can separate POMC transcription from inflammation and ER stress. That suggests to me that palmitate may be functioning at the level of lipid raft movement. Since palmitoyl ceramide is a potent pro-raft sphingolipid component. Now remember when I call it palmitoyl ceramide, remember that ceramide itself has a palmitic acid component. <laughs> the de novo synthesis requires palmitoyl-CoA to condense with L-serine, right? That's the serine palmitoyl transferase reaction I mentioned to you 15 minutes ago. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? We're not talking about the sphingonine backbone, which is what that is. 
we're talking about the addition of the fatty acid to the nitrogen atom, making an amide-linked uh, fatty acid, right? And when that occurs, that fatty acid that's added, that's what I'm talking about with different molecular species. You can have palmitate, you could have sterate, oleate, or any number of long-chain omega-6 and omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids linked to that nitrogen atom. That's going to change considerably the biological dynamics and biochemical perfidy associated with different ceramide molecular species. Okay? Talked about this in the past, just reminding you. So the esterification of palmitate to palmitoyl-CoA is really important because otherwise we have no biological, biochemical manifestation of enzymatic interactions of palmitic acid. Palmitic acid itself is totally inert because it's a saturated fatty acid. It has no ability to get into metabolic play. So you make a coenzyme A thioester, a thioester, and that gives it enough energy, that carbonyl enough energy to get involved in all the reactions that fatty acids can get involved in. The, the production of lipids and, of course, beta oxidation and all the signaling that goes on. <laughs> it's McCoyester. So that appears to be required for palmitate to increase in this paper, the POMC messenger RNA expression. Of course, that makes sense. If you don't make the biologically active component, palmitoyl-CoA, you're not going to get any activity. So they, they determine that in this paper. So good for them. Okay. This is like 1959 lipid biochemistry. This paper was published in 2018. No, and these are endocrinologists. Putting down endocrinologists, I'm just saying, endocrinologists are not lipid biochemists. So you're going to find out as we go through this paper, they take some pretty dark um, hallways and alleyways to try to get to a conclusion of what their data says. And it's because they don't know all the possible metabolic pathways for lipid metabolism. And that's where they run into trouble. We'll get to that uh, soon. So um, C16 ceramide can increase POMC transcription, but de novo ceramide synthesis is not involved. They show this in their paper. And if it's inhibited, more POMC is transcribed. So this suggests that ceramide is made either from what? <laughs> not the de novo pathway, but from sphingomyelinases, right, or phosphodiesterases, depending on how you call them, or, of course, the many different molecular forms of ceramide synthase, starting from sphingosin, and then picking up that fatty acid. You understand? So, <clears throat> oleate may obstruct palmitate-mediated inflammation and insulin resistance in primary rat cortical neurons. This is again, from the paper, POMC transcription and interleukin-6 and CHOP, which I'll talk about soon, by palmitate becomes completely blocked with oleate co-treatment. Oleate then appears to be anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective, according to this paper. That is speculation. Okay, it's a proposition that is speculative. And to deny this would require a correction, right? And that's what we're here to do here at Authentic Biochemistry. Data from isolated neurons or force-feeding a high-fat diet are not specific to biochemistry. 18 colon 1 is the most common, for example, there's a lot of things to talk about here. Uh, the, the oleic acid they use here, oleic acid, which is a delta 9 fatty acid, one double bond, the middle of the molecule, is the most common monounsaturated fatty acid in nature, certainly in humans, and in de novo biosynthesis in humans uh, in general, 
Uh, it's different than things like gram-negative bacteria where you make suspect cinnic acid, uh, but I'm detracting from the narrative, so I'll go back. So why wouldn't there be sufficient oleic acid to always counteract palmitic acid? Makes no sense. Yet this paper suggests that's exactly what's happening. It's another example where universal affirmatives and universal negatives are both false and only conditional subalternative propositions need apply for the logical conclusions here. These 2018 endocrinologists apparently don't know much about myelinases or ceramide synthesis. In fact, I would argue they really don't know anything about them <laughs> because they don't bring them up. So um, I'm going to continue on this by talking about now a series of other publications that you need to know to be able to interpret correctly what this paper is saying. All right? And that's what I'm going to do in my next two or three audio lectures. So I'm going to stop here by saying this is Dr. Dan Guerra uh, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful afternoon of the 28th of April, 2020. I will see you soon. Bye for now.